0: online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and today we continue by covering the sacrament of holy baptism from the catechisms and taking a look at the second and third parts. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Winehill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois, Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today with the Sacrament of Holy Baptism, as I set up there. We're going to cover the second and third parts. And I guess I'll just go ahead and cover this real quick for us, too. There's four parts to baptism, especially as we see it laid out for us in the small catechism, Luther's small catechism. But those have also been called questions. But, you know, as especially our junior high catechesis students like to point out to us. The first and second part at least have a couple of questions to each, and so sometimes they say, well, that's not really the first and second and third, fourth questions and so forth. There's four just in the first two, and so you may hear both, and uh, we may jump back and forth on both of those today, but jumping in here then with the second part, I'll go ahead and read the questions and answers that are here for us, and then throw it over to you for our catechesis, Pastor Bessel. So here is the second part of the Sacrament of Holy Baptism. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And that quote comes from Mark sixteen sixteen. All right, Pastor Bestel, as I like to tell my catechesis students there, you see the obvious connection in those two questions, and so we can't take that as one question, but go ahead and give us our catechesis on this second question or second part of holy baptism.
1: Sure, happy to, Sean. Out of all of Luther's explanations, this is one of my favorite, just because it speaks so well to the work of baptism, the divine work. God at work in this precious gift that is holy baptism. I really enjoy, especially the first phrase there. It's a wonderful description of this gift because it almost gives this notion of sort of moving parts in the definition. So when you hear these words, it works forgiveness of sins, right? When it works forgiveness of sins, you almost get this image of something Happening before God, before the judge. Uh, you might even have the image of the one who is to determine our future and our salvation. And at work is this gift of baptism, uh, almost in a sense, changing his mind toward us. But of course, this is God's gift toward us. And so it's not that it's changing his mind, but it's changing our relationship with him. And so it works this forgiveness of sins. Uh, what a wonderful description. It's a reminder of that same image that we used a couple episodes ago about the tower and the pipeline, right? How is the water tower meant to work? How are the benefits of the cross meant to come to us? You know, as we think of this beautiful image that John testifies for us in the moments of Christ's crucifixion and at his death, when the uh, spear is plunged into the side and water and blood pour forth. And then John confesses in the uh, fifth chapter of his first epistle that these things testify on the earth to God at work, right? Water, blood, the spirit, these three agree as one in their testimony. And you can get the sense that, yes, this is the precious gift of God at work, actually doing on earth what has been promised from heaven. And so, what Jesus worked on the cross is now distributed to the recipient in baptism. And a lot of the different Bible verses that speak of baptism sort of hint at this notion of God divinely at work in baptism. Uh, From Acts chapter 2, remember Peter says that this is for the forgiveness of your sins, right? That every time we hear that phrase, the forgiveness of sins, we should think of something that is actively working right here and now. Uh, from Titus chapter three, that baptism is this washing of regeneration, which of course is a rebirth, a renewal, Titus goes on and says, so a washing of rebirth and renewal, God at work in giving birth to the new life. Uh, First Peter chapter three, baptism now saves you. And that again, sort of this very present tense, divine Not just a divine benefit, but a divine activity and conduct that benefits you. Uh, Then you've got another verb here that's just such a wonderful verb. So it works forgiveness of sins. It rescues from death and the devil. And that gives not just the sense of something actively churning and going on right now, but this motion of pulling you away from. So notice how the different verbs give these different Images of something very actively going on. First, working in and for you. Secondly, pulling you away from danger. It rescues you from death and the devil, pulling you out of that which had you locked and condemned. You know, an image that's often used is the idea of a jailer with the key and the jail cell being opened and rescuing you out of that prison of darkness. You could also use And this uh, particular liturgical item is just so wonderful that you could spend a whole hour just on this. In fact, I had a baptism recently, and with most of my uh, baptisms, I sit down with the parents and we go over this liturgical item, this flood prayer of Luther's that we use in the baptismal rite. And think of how the flood prayer talks about the rescue of Noah, how God rescued Noah and his family, eight souls and all. Uh, how it goes on and talks about the fact of God rescuing the Israelites in the parting of the Red Sea. And then it connects that to the rescuing of the baptized, the baptized in the ark of the Holy Christian Church. And the language there in the flood prayer even includes the idea of being separated from the multitude of unbelievers. So we are rescued, we are pulled apart from death and the devil, we're separated and we are safeguarded in this holy ark that is the Christian Church. And so here we've got this great phrase of and a, a description of what it means to be saved and rescued, just as we have in the scriptures. Keep in mind, as, as I say, this is Luther's or, or one of my favorite explanations that Luther writes. That doesn't mean that this theology is something that Luther is making up in his head but he can draw from the scriptural imagery in the scriptural passages. So Colossians chapter one, uh, quote, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. So notice that delivering out of the domain of darkness, uh, when the church is referred to, right, the ecclesia being called out of the world. And that's sort of this notion, one by one, we are being called out of the world. And we are being called out of the world in holy baptism. So that he rescues us from the domain of darkness, the death and the devil. And then Colossians 1 says, he transferred us to the kingdom of his son. And that comes to that third verbal description there in the first line of this explanation. So it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives. So he transferred us into and he gives eternal salvation to all who believe. He brings the baptized to an inheritance. Again, from the flood prayer, where Luther prays, quote, give them true faith by the Holy Spirit. And again, safeguard them in the church that they may be declared worthy of eternal life. Not that they may earn it, but that he's simply giving us this eternal life that he promises and that as a dear heavenly father, he bestows upon and showers upon us. Think of that wonderful hymn, um, very new in the history of the church, but some hymns that we have, the theology is just great, and these are hymns that were written maybe 15, 20 years ago, and there's that wonderful hymn in the Lutheran service book, hymn number 602, The Gifts Christ Freely Gives, and what a wonderful description of what the sacraments are and what Christ is doing with them, and here you see it in holy baptism. Uh, Certainly other wonderful baptismal hymns. God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. We'll get into that when we get into some of the other benefits here of holy baptism. Uh, So the flood prayer, give them true faith by the Holy Spirit and safeguard them in the church that they might be declared worthy of eternal life. So God is giving us this eternal salvation, this gift and this inheritance. Even that concept, just to pause on that for a moment, the idea of gift, the idea of inheritance, those two terms remind us of a few very blessed truths. One is that this is being done by God himself. Again, if it's a gift, it can't be done by the one receiving the gift. Otherwise, it won't be gift. But the very fact that this is a gift reminds us that this is being done by God himself. Again, that's not, in a sense, theological rationalism, but straight from the scriptures. Titus chapter 3, he saved us with the washing of rebirth and renewal. And then from Ephesians 5, that Christ, in delivering the church unto himself as a groom, brings the bride unto himself, it says that Christ washed her with water in the word. So God is at work in this, and that makes it a wonderful blessing and gift. Also the the idea of inheritance, right? And so the large catechism in talking about this, though it seems a very simple quote, and almost one that you might pass by really quickly. I just love, in the simplicity of the quote, I love how profound the thought is. When Luther says in the large catechism, to be baptized in God's name is to be baptized not by men, but by God himself. And think about that great joy of watching a baptism, certainly we perhaps don't recall our own, if we were baptized as infants, maybe some of our listeners out there were baptized as adults and can think back on their own baptism. And you can say of that baptism, whether of the infant or even of your own, to be able to say, I am not being baptized by a mere man, though the pastor is the instrument, the vessel, the tool that God uses to apply the water. Nevertheless. I am being baptized by no one short of God himself, not simply by a messenger of God, not by a pastor, not even by a prophet or apostle. How wonderful it would be, I suppose, to be baptized by Moses or Elijah or Paul or or Peter or whatever. We might think, hey, that makes it special. But guess what? It doesn't make it more special, and it can get more special than the fact that you are being baptized and you have been baptized by God, by God himself. And if God himself has given you this wonderful gift, then you can say there is nothing that can be added to this. There's nothing better, no better gift and no, nothing else under heaven. Nothing better than to say, I am part of the share of the inheritance of God. I am part of his family that he, in his great mercy toward me, has said, I desire you to, uh, for you to be beneficiary of all that I have. And because of that very notion, there's another word here that I think is a wonderful word to use to talk about the benefits of baptism. Though in the scriptures, it's only very subtly attached to baptism, it is there. And that word is the word adoption. Perhaps there isn't a verse where it simply says, baptism has adopted you into the family of sons, But there are verses which sort of draw on that reality and show that our life as the adopted children of God is because of baptism. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, you have this wonderful text that starts with the incarnation of Christ, and it's really a text that we hear, actually, in the Christmas season as a reminder that our benefit of baptism is something that stems all the way back to Christ's birth. And it stems all the way back to God sending His Son into the world for us. And so from Galatians chapter 4, we hear this from St. Paul, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So notice there's the whole historical work of the Messiah, right? Coming in the flesh, carrying out his ministry to the final work of the cross, that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Perhaps that doesn't specifically mention baptism, but that is baptismal language, that we receive the gifts of being children of God. And it goes on, it says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts Think of Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is baptismal language. Uh, He has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you are an heir through God. Notice that how this language of adoption is so helpful in understanding what the true benefit is. And the everlasting benefit of baptism is. It's nothing short of, of God looking at this child who was a child of darkness and now saying, I have brought you into my own domain, into the kingdom of light. Now think of this imagery of adoption and think of how we use it in the temporal world. It's a great image in discussing what the true benefit of baptism is. And in fact, I think I use this image most when I'm discussing baptism with adult catechumens who are coming out of American evangelical churches, uh, Baptist churches. But why? Because they're coming from churches who teach a believer's baptism, who say, you need to make your decision for Jesus. And this baptism doesn't really make anyone a Christian. It signifies that they are a Christian. It's sort of a ceremonial baptism, but it's not a baptismal regeneration and a washing that makes you new. But that's not at all what the image of adoption, as presented from the scriptures, really talks about. Rather, the image of adoption, when you think about it in a temporal setting, when you have an orphanage and you have children in the orphanage, it's not the children who get to choose the parent, but rather it's the mother and the father, the man and the woman who say, We want to adopt a child and bring that child into our home and give the child all the love and inheritance of what our home and namesake can offer. And so the man and the woman, they show up into that adoption agency and they Adopt a child. Nowadays, perhaps we've lost the image because the adoption agency is putting us together based on paperwork and things like that. But perhaps in the old days, you might think of that image of just walking into an orphanage and saying, We want to adopt a child and bring that child home so that that child can benefit from all of us. And so the orphan does not choose the father, but the father chooses the child. And then once he is chosen, that child is heir of everything included in the family name for his entire life, for his whole life, for his entire identity, his status. Uh, If you think of the Old Testament, remember the idea of circumcision. Paul says that we have the circumcision made without hands, but circumcision was gift for the child. It was commanded to the parents, but for the child, it was gift in saying, you now are part of the family line of abraham you are part of the line of circumcision right that was actually gift when god originally instituted it there in the old testament and so when you think of that status that circumcision gave a status and now this greater status the circumcision made without hands not i was baptized but i am baptized and so to be included in the in the family name for one's whole life what a blessed gift and there's simply nothing that can improve upon this reality of being a baptized child of God. And so you have scriptural passages that even talk about this concept of being a child of God. And interestingly, you have scriptural passages that sort of hint at the notion of what it would be if God was not mindful of us. Remember when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross And in the book of John, you have that long discourse of Jesus with his disciples all the way from John 13, all the way through John 17, and this long discourse when they were in the upper room. And remember what Jesus says. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I don't think that word was chosen coincidentally, but rather it's a great reminder for us in the life of the church that though Christ has ascended, he does not leave us as orphans. The Heavenly Father does not leave us as orphans. We can go through the entire trials and tribulations that this world has for us. Remember, Jesus, in the very same dialogue, says, In this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, or be of good cheer, or fear not. I have overcome the world. But the great promise is, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will bring you unto myself. Jesus brings us as a groom brings a bride. But then also as a son brings his bride into the household, that makes that bride a daughter of the Father. And so you've got that wonderful language in the book of John that talks about what life would be like without the mercy of God for the baptized. It would be like being an orphan, but that's not how Christ leaves us, and that's not the promise of the Father. But rather, he sends to his children the Holy Spirit, And he promises that he will bring us unto that eternal inheritance that is promised for the baptized. Think of other passages. John chapter 1, for those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's adoption language, that the adopted have the right to say, I am a child of this family and I carry all the rights and privileges of the child. And it says there, remember in John chapter 1, that those who he gave the right to become children of God, it says, not born of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God, right? There's baptism, those who are born of God. And of course, there then, just a couple chapters later, Jesus is in great detail talking about baptism to Nicodemus. Uh, Another place, again, in 1 John, when John says to the reader and to the church, remember he's writing his letters to the church. And he writes to the church and he says, beloved, we are God's children now. That is one of my favorite sentences in all of scripture. It's just so profound. And John even know, John knows how profound it is when he goes on and he says, the reason why the world does not know us, or the reason why the world doesn't recognize this great reality is that it does not know him. And yet we are God's children now. And there's just something that is so breathtaking about that passage, and you just cannot explain it adequately. That we have this right to be able to say, I am a child of God. I think we sadly have started to use that phrase almost a little bit too flippantly, like we don't take the time to think of the weight of it. It's such a wonderful phrase that it has become very common to use. And I think when we first started using it, we did so because we realized just how profound the phrase is. But perhaps we sometimes make the mistake of thinking of the phrase and sort of passing over it too quickly, rather than unpacking that phrase and saying, I have the right to say this of myself. And I have that right because God has baptized me and adopted me into his family. And so it's a status thing. When John says that in his epistle, of course, he's writing not only to the littlest of children, he's writing to the whole congregation. And this helps us see that to be a child of God is not an age-related thing. We don't outgrow it as if once we're confirmed, we should be ashamed of such childish things, but it's a status thing. So the gift that makes one a child of God is not an age-related thing either. It's not just about being you know, adult believers' baptism, but also for the little children, Acts chapter 2. For you and for your children and for all who are far off. From uh, Matthew and Mark, I believe, you have Jesus saying, Let the little children come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you receive it like a little child, you will by no means enter it. This shows this great status that is ours as the baptized child of God. Now I should point out here you know last hour we talked about that topic that can be a, uh, it can be a sensitive topic for folks this idea of blessing children and as I as I mentioned last hour I said look go talk with your pastors about it okay and I can certainly sympathize if by the phrase blessing children a pastor might say and and, and pastor smith this might be your position on it saying well I'm not actually bestowing an additional sacramental gift upon them, but rather I am granting them a remembrance of their baptism. I'm bringing to mind their baptism. I would say, all right, great, great. If by the word blessing, children, we're not saying that we're adding sacramentally to their baptism, I would say, great, by all means, include that remembrance of baptism in their baptismal life, I might say maybe instead of at the altar rail, maybe a good time for that would be as they're leaving the sanctuary or entering the sanctuary, walking past the baptismal font. But the reason I bring it up here is because notice that you can and should say that to them in in encouraging them to know that baptism is such a wonderful gift because, again, not I was baptized, but I am baptized. It's the baptized who have all the rights of God. Right? Think of how in the early church the Lord's Prayer, and we still do this in the baptismal rite, in a sense, we give the prayer to the child. You pray the Lord's Prayer over the child, and in a sense, as the early church did, you understood that now that the person is baptized, now they can share with you in declaring or in praying and appealing, our Father. The faithless world has no right to appeal to our Father, but certainly the baptized do. And therefore we share with them in all the blessings. But this is where, if you're going to, you know, and I would encourage the pastors out there to think about this or encourage members to talk to their pastors about this, what about when we bring forward visitors to the congregation? We say, you know, if you're visiting and you're not allowed to commune, come forward and cross your hands and the pastor will give you a blessing. What if those visitors aren't Christian? What if they're not the baptized? What are we bestowing upon them, supposedly, or reminding them of, supposedly? So we do have to be careful with these customs, traditions, ceremonies, whatever you want to call them, that are meant to teach. And there's nothing wrong with a ceremony that means to teach them the memory of baptism and the remembrance of baptism. But we have to be very careful then in extending that somewhat carelessly out to visitors that we don't know, and we don't know if they're the baptized. And so though we might speak of it sort of cautiously and negatively in regards to the idea of blessing at the altar rail, very positively, think of what that means to actually be the baptized. What status is yours? What identity is yours? And what inheritance is yours? It's a beautiful section, not only of the Catechism, but a beautiful promise of God.
0: That is an excellent point. And as we did talk about last episode in greater detail about this, That is where I do make use of that practice because you're right. We have to be careful that we're not giving the impression or thinking that we are bestowing, you know, kind of an extra sacramental blessing upon them until they can receive the sacrament of the altar or anything like that. Certainly we don't want that. But the way I use it is to reaffirm for them that this is their status. This is the blessing that they have. And as we want to encourage families to especially raise their children to continually come to the altar when they receive the Lord's Supper and the beauty of it coming as a family, I think part of that training is bringing the children with you as you bring them to church as well. And so that's why I make use of it. And What I do actually is I just use the words that we have here in the second part, the second question from Mark 16, 16, when I just say, This is the blessing of your baptism. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And that reminds them of their status as God's own child, which relates then to what we'll pick up on the other side of the break, which is how then can we be sure that this is our status? How can we be sure that water does this great thing for us? And that, of course, is the third question that we encounter here in the small catechism. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO.
1: Take a look around you. Look closely.
0: and welcome back to concord matters as we continue our catechized life series and today covering the sacrament of holy baptism the second and third parts and we covered in the first half of the show here today the second part that second question what benefits does baptism give and there's another question as a part of that Which are these words and promises of God? Of course, that relates to where we see that answer to the benefits of baptism. We see that status as Pastor Bestel laid out for us. And that flows in nicely then to the third part this third question how can water do such great things? Where we get that promise well laid out for us of exactly how we can be sure of that status. So I'll go ahead and read this from the Small Catechism and then let Pastor Bestel talk about that. So the third part from Luther's Small Catechism on holy baptism, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism, that is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And that quote from Scripture comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. All right, Pastor Bessel, I think you mentioned there in the first half of the show that you really like this second question. I really love this third question. I just. You know, the faith which trusts this word in the water, just beautiful language here from Luther. Go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on
1: this. You're right, Sean, the the language here is beautiful. And the inclusion, and we'll get to this in a minute, the inclusion of faith is a very important part of this third part, and it really is the detail of this third part that distinguishes it, in a sense, from the first. I think a lot of people read this and they say, you know, this sort of sounds similar to the very first part. And so why is Luther rehashing these comments again? I mean, think of how some of this sounds very similar. Not just water. Well, in the first part, he said it is not just plain water, right? Then the Word of God in and with the water. Well, it is the water included in God's command combined with God's Word. Then you've got without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. Well, that sounds, again, sort of like that first part, that it could be considered plain water, except that it's attached to God's word. And so a lot of this section, people might say, well, this sounds sort of similar to the first part, but the focus on the word and water at work, Luther also discusses the idea of faith and what is faith's role in this. But he reiterates that even though we're going to talk about faith's role, It's not faith that does this or that makes it. In fact, in the large catechism, there's a section where Luther, in defending the idea of infant baptism, he says, quote, my faith does not make baptism, but receives it. Okay, that's a very important distinction. And that's what he's talking about here is the idea that faith clings to and holds on to these great promises, but that faith does not thereby make the baptism. So he, in a sense, goes back to the first part, what is baptism? And he says, well, here here are all the components, and here's how it works, and then faith receives that. So how can water do such great things? Well, it's certainly not just the water, but it is the Word of God working with the water, and that makes for a valid baptism, and faith receives it and rejoices in it, and then the effects and benefits of baptism belong to the believer. This is a great opportunity, then, to talk about some of the distinctions to be made between even the notion of valid and effective. Some people think that, you know, some people accuse Lutherans of sort of once saved, always saved. You just jump through the hoop of baptism, and then you go run off into your own sinful life, and you never care because you always just pull out that card that says, Oh, don't worry, I'm baptized, so I can go sin boldly. That's a total misuse in uh, misinterpretation and misrepresentation of the Lutheran confession regarding the certain joy of the baptismal life. On the other hand, you've got those who say baptism doesn't really do anything, and it's really the faith that saves, rather than the faith that clings to that which is God's saving work. Remember we are justified, not just I'm justified by faith, but I'm justified by grace through faith. Faith clings to the grace. And here in this explanation, you've got sort of this veiled reference to that reality, or maybe I should say it differently. Behind the scenes here, you have sort of this phrase again, by grace through faith, even though it's sort of veiled and sort of hidden behind the words. Nevertheless, this explains it quite well. So we are reiterating that baptism works because it is God's work in the water with the Word. And again, but boy, we just have to Sit back for a moment and consider just how much opposition there is. Sadly, even within nominal Christendom, how much opposition there is to the simple confession that God's word works with the elements that he promises to use. And so people reject this idea that this is how baptism works. They put all of the effort or all of the merit, if you will, all of the validity on the believer. So you've got something like a believer's baptism because it's this idea that man's decision or faith is what makes the act of baptism. And that makes it basically ceremonial in their view. Uh, Not too many weeks ago, we had in the three-year lectionary, we had the reading of traditions and ceremonies, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus calls out the Pharisees for being hypocritical because they're so worried about the disciples Defiling themselves by not washing their hands before they eat. And of course, we're not talking about a physical defilement as if the Pharisees were worried about germs, but rather a ceremonial defilement of righteousness before God. And it's an interesting word choice that is there in Mark chapter seven when Mark describes all of the different washings that the Pharisees had cups, vessels, pots, dining couches. And the word there for washing is, of course, baptizo, to baptize. So notice they accepted all of these ceremonial baptisms, but they refused the baptism of God. They were willing to say that man could do all of this work for ceremonial baptisms, but they refused to acknowledge that God could do the work of the baptism of regeneration that Jesus had been proclaiming and promising. And so this question, this third part, is a wonderful reminder for us, as Luther reiterates, first and foremost, this is the word and the water at work. And then he includes and expands on this in saying that along with the faith, which trusts this word of God in the water. So the faith is there right? The faith is there. Now, again, Christians can start to try to rationalize all this and say, is the faith there before the baptism? Is it there after the baptism? How come in the baptismal right you ask the child if they believe in God the Father Almighty, if they believe in Jesus Christ and go through the Apostles' Creed, how come you do that before the baptism if faith is given in baptism? Well, again, go to the Scriptures. Acts chapter two, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings faith and faith right there, passively received, actively believes and clings immediately to the promise, right? Almost like when a newborn child, when a child is born and, uh, uh, I've had six kids and gotten to watch this almost a miracle. I know it's, uh, natural reality, and so we wouldn't call it a miracle. And yet, my word, what what an amazing thing to watch the birth of a child. And immediately, that child clings out of trust and confidence, clings to the mother. Same thing with the faith of the baptized, that yes, even though it's almost an instantaneous reality, faith is already rejoicing and clinging to this status as a child who can trust the Heavenly Father. Unfortunately, That's not always how it's viewed. And unfortunately, in many of these churches, we are taught, no, don't trust in the joy and the beauty of that. But rather, they turn it into a ceremony, and they try to separate the work of the Holy Spirit from the baptismal waters. Acts chapter 2, again, is so helpful here. In baptism, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you see those things working together, then we have great reason for joy. And when you it, I, before going on to this thought, let me recount again just for a second here. We had talked about in the baptismal rite, you give the Apostles' Creed and you ask the child, do you believe this? Remember back in the early church, the Apostles' Creed was given to the catechumen. Right before their baptism, and saying, This is the faith that you are going to be baptized into. Do you believe this? And so that ritual carries from there. And yet, it's a beautiful image that we include in the baptismal rite that even to the little child and even to the infant, we can say, This is the faith that you are right now receiving and being brought into as one who once was a child of darkness, lost. In utter loss and utter confusion about the things of God, and yet now you are being brought into this, and then you will be raised in it, right? Matthew 28, keep in mind in Matthew 28, the words of institution regarding baptism, where Christ says, You baptize and you teach. The little child might not be able to understand and comprehend and grasp all the teaching right away, but neither is the newborn able to understand and grasp everything about his mother right away. And yet that newborn can trust his mother and certainly more so with the Holy Spirit at work, the newborn baptized can trust the heavenly father. And so in Matthew, it is interesting also to note that notice there where even though a lot of the examples in the church are about the adults being catechized and then baptized. Notice that in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching it's interesting that he puts the baptism first because in the early life of the church you're right to catechize and teach all of the adults because the adults are going to ask what does this mean what am i you know what faith would i be baptized into they need to be taught first and then they rejoice in the gift of baptism as we have with the ethiopian remember when the ethiopian is in the chariot and philip comes up to him and he says do you understand what you're reading and he says how can i unless somebody explains it to me and so Philip catechizes the Ethiopian, and then what does the Ethiopian do? He jumps at the chance to be baptized. He says, look, there's water. What prevents me from this baptism? What prevents me from this gift? And yet that's with adults, first generation of the church, way back at the you know in the first century. But it's almost as if Jesus gives this word of institution to remind us that in the second generation of the church and going forward, the normal course of action— is to baptize first because the child is a little infant who's not going to be able to understand and be taught all these things yet, and yet an integral part and an expected part of baptism is the baptismal life of teaching. And so here is the Holy Spirit at work granting faith in the baptism, as we saw in the baptismal rite, the Apostles' Creed being handed to the child as now an heir of the kingdom of God, the Lord's prayer being prayed over the child for the first time and saying, you now have the right to pray this with us. All of that because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and then the child is raised in the Christian faith and eventually becomes able to articulate those things and learn those things that they are growing up in the wisdom of the Lord. Sadly, now this is where I was starting to mention this, and now we'll come back to this. Sadly, there are a lot of Church teachings out there, especially in America, but it was already happening in Reformation Europe. There are a lot of teachings out there that call themselves Christian that seek to dispel baptism of its actual beautiful, godly, divine work and say, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. the Holy Spirit works apart from this. And so not only do they turn baptism into an empty ceremony, but they also then try to talk about the Holy Spirit at work apparently and supposedly apart from baptism. And one of the ways that they do this is by supposedly pointing to the day of Pentecost and saying, look, look at the Holy Spirit at work apart from baptism, that here he's coming in tongues of fire, here everyone is speaking in tongues. But I think that Lutherans need to be able to articulate well why this is not a good explanation for Pentecost nor does this displace baptism's importance. First of all, when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in that glorious moment, they are not receiving the Holy Spirit unto salvation. They have already been named and counted by Jesus as his brothers, right? He calls them his brothers in the resurrection. They are already the disciples of Christ. Go, therefore, making disciples, baptizing and teaching them. They are already a part of the family of God. Many of them probably were baptized by John the Baptist. Secondly, interestingly, if you read the book of Acts carefully, none of the crowds ever notice, or it never says that they notice the tongues of fire. They just notice that they're speaking in foreign languages. And so immediately you, have to, you can sort of knock down the argument a little bit and say, no, your argument is a weak argument, but it gets even weaker. And it gets even weaker when we see that on the day of Pentecost, what does Peter point them to? What does he point the crowds to? He doesn't say, repent and be baptized, and the Holy Spirit will work by coming among you in the speaking of tongues and fire from heaven. But rather, he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where? Right in that baptism. And then it talks about the idea that they were all baptized and 3,000 souls were added into the church or whatever the number was that day. Then. The book of Acts goes on and it shows the joy of baptism being brought to the nations, the word of God being brought to the nations. And so you have these multiple, what I call mini Pentecosts. And I, I'm sure that term is used by more than just myself. I think pastors often refer to it as sort of these mini Pentecosts all throughout the book of Acts. And why are these mini Pentecosts happening? Well, again, Our American evangelical friends would like to say it's happening, because that's how people are being saved, is through these mini-Pentecosts. But that's not what the text says. If you compare, for example, the end of Luke, and of course, Luke also writes the book of Acts. So compare the end of Luke, where Jesus says, you are my witnesses to all of these things beginning in Jerusalem. Then compare that to Acts chapter 1, in which Jesus, before he ascends, says, You are my witnesses to all these things and bring this to all the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That same pattern is what you see in these mini Pentecosts that happen throughout the book of Acts. So when our American evangelical friends like to point out that, oh, in such and such, in the case of so and so, it says that they had been baptized by John, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And Lutherans start to get confused here and go, wait a second here. Maybe they're right. Maybe there's something going on here where baptism isn't actually doing the work that we believe that it's doing. But look at those four cases. First, you have Acts chapter two, Jerusalem. Right, they're right in Jerusalem in Acts chapter two. In chapter eight, the baptism that happens in chapter eight, they're in Samaria. In Acts chapter ten. They're with cornelius in caesarea and there you start to get the idea of going out to the nations caesarea is way up near the mediterranean and it's starting to be sort of the exit point of the holy lands and now you're getting into the turkish peninsula there and, and into europe and then later in the book of acts you get to in chapter 19 a baptism that occurs in ephesus which certainly is nowhere near the holy lands and so notice jerusalem Samaria, the ends of the earth, what's the only one missing? The only one missing is Judea, when Jesus says in uh, Acts chapter 1, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, except it's not missing, because in that sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the crowd what? How does he address them? He doesn't say men of Jerusalem, but rather he says men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and Judea are right there together because the city of Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. And so both of those occur right away. But then Jesus instructed them. You're also going to take this to Samaria and you're also going to take this to the Gentiles, to all of the nations. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all nations. Um, Matthew 28, again, go therefore making disciples of all nations, the word there, ethne, all of the other ethnicities that are not of the Jews. Everyone is beneficiary of this. This is my gift for everyone. And so you've got these mini-Pentecosts that happen once in each region, and because Caesarea is right on the tip, if you will, of the Holy Lands, I think that's why it happens again in Ephesus, just to show just how far out into the nations this is going to go. And then going through this, then, you have these mini-Pentecosts that show that Jesus' promise holds true. The gospel is for all of these nations. However, interestingly, within all of those, you have two other occasions in which there is a baptism and there is no coming of the Holy Spirit outside of the baptism. There is no sign or visible sign. And remember, even in those occasions in which it does happen, the visible sign is not for the ones who are being saved. The visible sign is for those who are watching, like the circumcision party Jews, who thought that this salvation was only for the Jews, and the apostles are showing, or God is showing by granting this coming of the Holy Spirit, hey, this is not just for the Jews, this is for the Gentiles as well. But there are notably two other occasions as this is all happening. You have the Philippian jailer in Acts 17 and also Lydia in Acts 16, in which there is no mention. Of this supernatural vision and outer body experience that the American evangelicals like to point to. But what is mentioned? Baptism. Baptism, 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 because there is exactly what Christ promised, the end of the book of Matthew, right? To be delivered out to all nations, the end of the book of Luke, and the scene in Acts chapter one as Jesus ascends into heaven. So we as Lutherans, can have a very strong position in saying, look, I can very clearly defend against this American evangelical notion that somehow God works apart from baptism. And yet I bring this up in this hour because I think as Lutherans, we have to get better at this. Luther understood just how dangerous this push of the anti Sacramentalists was when it comes to baptism. Think about the fact that in his large catechism, Luther includes an entire section on infant baptism. So, interestingly, in the small catechism, you have the six chief parts, and the fourth, fifth, and sixth are baptism, confession, or we might say absolution, baptism, confession, and the sacrament of the altar. Interestingly, in the large catechism, confession is brought right into the discussion on baptism to show that it is part of the baptismal life, and we'll get to that in our next episode. But what does Luther include in the section on baptism? He includes a whole section on defending infant baptism. Now think about that. These catechisms had only been written about a decade after the Reformation really started, and yet already the, uh, as Luther calls them, the schwarmerei or the enthusiasts Their position on a believer's baptism was winning so many people over that Luther felt it necessary to instruct right in the catechism about the dangers of this view, and he felt it necessary to defend infant baptism because perhaps already so many Christians were saying, gee, maybe it's not good enough for infants to be baptized. Maybe I need a believer's baptism when I'm older, and yet if that were the case— As Luther points out in the large catechism, there wouldn't have been a single soul saved for 1,500 years, because before the enthusiasts pop up in the Reformation, every congregation throughout all of Christendom always knew of infant baptism. And so we as Lutherans have reason to stand tall on this and speak with joy on this. And yet, I think we as Lutherans also have to take the time to be able to study these things and articulate these things well. To defend this, just as Luther knew it needed to be defended even already in his day. So faith's role is not to make the baptism. And that's why I brought this up, because for so much of our American culture, faith is seen as that which saves. Faith saves because of its own merit and its own decisions, rather than us speaking about the idea of faith saving only in the sense that it clings to the grace which actually saves, God at work, not man at work in believing. So, we are saved by grace through faith, and so faith's role is to cling, even as it has now just been created, nevertheless, it immediately clings to this. Here's a great quote from Luther on this. He says, You see plainly that there is no work done here by us but a treasure, which God gives us and faith grasps. It is like the benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, which is not a work, but a treasure included in the Word. In the same way, by all means, the word makes the sacrament, not faith makes the sacrament. And Luther includes here in his section on baptism in the large catechism, he compares it to even in the sacrament of the altar, he says, faith does not make the sacrament of the altar. So also here in the sacrament of baptism, faith does not make the sacrament. Faith receives it, and that is its joyous role. And so God is not baptizing a rock or a stone or a statue, but he's bringing a child out of the realm of darkness. And into his marvelous light. And immediately, not only faith can, but faith rejoices in saying, Amen. I believe this. This is most certainly true. Even if that faith then, as an infant, must wait to go on and learn and grow up in the faith and what it means to now live in this new kingdom of the Son. This is exactly what adoption looks like, doesn't it? That very first day, the orphan can say, I'm no longer an orphan. I am now a child of the family, adopted by a father who loves me, and the orphan has that right and joy, even if the orphan must then, as a new child of the family, learn all the ins and outs of the house, of the household, and all the inheritance that is his.
0: I think that is an excellent point, and just to reaffirm here, too, I love the image that you give to us of the infant being born and immediately clinging to the mother. As you said there, you know, being a father and seeing that happen, that is exactly the nature of how faith works for us. And I also love picking up on this, uh, just to add to what you said there, this life-giving water and new birth language that Luther used in the explanation here. We can also think of it in terms of this way, because a lot of times the believer's baptism makes much of word order and so forth. Did I play any part in making my, or having my parents conceive me? No, right? I I didn't climb into the head of my father and say, you know, go do the marriage thing with my mother so that I can be born. No, that's not how it works, right? It is the work of the father for our benefit that gives us that birth. And that's exactly as Romans tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? That's all connected in here too, as well. The word with the water creates the faith. Again, I love this section on that excellent teaching and catechesis on this second and third parts of Holy Baptism here for us today, again, by our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you so much for that. As we continue this Catechized Life series next week, we will pick up the fourth part, that fourth question, and the related two questions under that part next week, and there take a look at and transition then in how we see our baptized life and how that plays out in confession, absolution, life of faith that we lead going forward as well, even into the Lord's Supper. So that's how we're going to continue to progress on this series. Once again, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vessel I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you so much for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.